Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at controversial criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where you can visit the top of the Eiffel Tower or enjoy a cocktail at the oldest bar in America, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, the city that said no to Federal Express, but yes to the only brick-and-mortar Hearst Museum in the United States. Thank you for joining us for Episode 3, State of California versus O.J. Simpson. This is a live show, and calls are always welcome. You can call us at 347-989-1171. Good evening, Michael. How are you doing? Hey, it's another day in paradise here in Arkansas. It's supposed to be warm, but, of course, it's still cold. Welcome to Arkansas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I saw a meme that was hilarious it has a bird in a hat and a coat saying spring forward how far did you move it exactly I was about to say <laughs> it's kind of funny uh, it's, uh, I've seen memes on Facebook that say you can't fit all season, all four seasons into one week and then it shows Arkansas and it says that <laughs> uh, that is yeah that's Louisiana too yeah, that's no lie. Yeah. We got a we got an extra one too. We get a monsoon season apparently. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Well, we're going to be talking about an area though tonight where you know it really a lot of people don't associate it with weather, so to speak. They associate it with uh, with beautiful weather, so to speak. Uh, not a cloud in the sky, beaches, all that good stuff. There, Southern California, and a really mm-hmm. interesting case. You know, even though as old as what it is, you know, it really got brought back into the public attention this last Sunday night, talking about O.J. Simpson. Definitely. He won't go away. No, I don't (laughs) think we'll ever kind of rid ourselves of that uh, monster, so to speak. And speaking of this last Sunday, go ahead and give me your thoughts, because I know you've watched all of the... uh, quote-unquote lost confessions 
Um, go yeah. and give me your thoughts so far. I've only seen a piece of it, and so far, I mean, the best word I can use to describe his demeanor is he's a smug son of a bitch. Definitely, most definitely is a smug son of a bitch. Um, arrogant. He, the, the lost concession came out of the book that he wrote, If I Did It. And because he has that huge civil judgment for the Goldmans uh, against him for the wrongful deaths of Ron and Nicole, he's spent the last two decades or so trying to figure out ways to make money but not have to pay on the judgment. His pension, of course, is exempt under, I believe it was Florida law. But any other money he makes from immobilia, appearances, books, TV, all that is supposed to go to the Goldmans. But he's always trying to figure out a way to uh, get money under the table that they'll never right. know about. And that was what, if I did it, was supposed to be. Fortunately, the Golden the Goldmans found out about it. And they went back to the court and they said, look, he's doing this. All the proceeds should go to us. And the court agreed. And so they got the rights to the book. I think he had sold the rights to his story to try and make money. And right. And he has court- actually, he, it actually caused the book and the special to be delayed, correct? Correct. Um, the families did object to the, the special because it was made with the intent to promote the book. However, after watching it, I have to say that the uh, publisher, and her, her name escapes me at the moment, she was brilliant. She was a brilliant interviewer. I think there are police officers out there that could learn a thing or two from her because it was really her skills as an interviewer that kept him talking and kept him there. Absolutely. For two you know, hours. You got to wonder though, you know, at that point, I think the origin I think it was originally done, I want to say the 0405 time range, maybe a little bit earlier than that. And you got to wonder if potentially, you know, at that point, OJ was just like, hey, I got away with it. You got to wonder if OJ was just, you know, that was his way of kind of flaunting, hey, you know, I'm going to say this tongue in cheek, but, you know, if I did it, here's how I would have done it. Right, right. I think that he still has an interest in trying to save face, especially with his daughter, Sydney, and his son, Justin. Mm -hmm. And so I right. think he wants to have a kind of a an element of plausible deniability to mm-hmm. say, I know I did, I know I did this, but it wasn't real. And that, too, is a symptom of an abusive personality. You know, when they hit, when he hit Nicole in 89, that wasn't his fault, that was her fault. She started mm-hmm. And he yeah, didn't really yeah. do anything to her. And, it was you know, they arrested him, and it was all... Right, right, correct. And, you know, he he didn't really do anything, and, uh, you know, he, he shouldn't have been arrested, and it, it wasn't really anything. It, wasn't, it was no big deal. It was no big deal. But those pictures, right. 
were after that incident. Right, right, absolutely. That we've we've seen so many times. I remember vividly he said, actually, if you look at the pictures, you can tell it's just us wrestling. No, bro, like, her arm was like... Right, right, right. And, you know, and he has, he's had all these excuses. He, at one point, he said those pictures, she was going to be in some kind of movie, and it was, it was makeup from the movie. And she had those pictures taken just to screw me. You know, so he's, uh, he can't, he's lying, so he can't remember what lies he's told. Absolutely. I mean, by this point, you got to wonder if he does have a hard time. You know, remember it, oh, wait, I said I did this. And, you know, he accidentally said mm-hmm. something else. But the deal is with this whole situation, I mean, obviously, you don't want to give O.J. Simpson too much credit. Number one, the whole thing is really about Nicole Brown Simpson. And also, you know, the forgotten piece in all this, Ron Goldman, who was also brutally right. murdered that night. You know, the Goldmans always maintained that they wanted their son not to be forgotten. They felt as if Nicole was the only thing being focused on and their son was murdered too. And, you know, you got to give them, you know, you got to give them a little bit of credence in that. Nobody really talks about Ron. Everybody talks about Nicole. Correct. Correct. And unfortunately, you know, the saddest, I think Ron Goldman's death is, is more tragic even than Nicole's because he was only there trying to do somebody a favor. And he may have gotten involved because O.J., when he arrived, was attacking Nicole. And he may have intervened to try and help her and ended up losing his life. Well, absolutely. And another, another, you know, thing that we're going to get into in this case that I want to kind of address right off the top of the head is the genius of Johnny Cocker to manage to take something that was a slam dunk for the prosecution from an evidence case and turn it into basically a civil rights case. I mean, and I hate to call him a genius because, I mean, he effectively got a murderer off. But, I mean, really, you've got to call it what it is, and you've got to call a spade a spade. Really, he took something that was unwinnable, and he managed to snatch victory out of the jaws of defeat. Well, I think he had a little bit of help with that. I don't find it to be genius. I find it to be actually almost bad faith because O.J. Simpson had not lived in or done anything for the black community for decades. Absolutely. I mean, you know, he was living in a, a fancy area in Buffalo when he played for the Bills. And, you know, he left the projects in Oakland in college, and he never looked back. Absolutely. And, let's and go ahead and get so into this. he was uh, one of the things, there was an incident in 1984 or 1985 where mm-hmm. O.J. took a bat in Nicole's car. Mark Furman was the officer who responded to that incident. Mm-hmm. The same Mark Furman who was allegedly such a vile racist 
that he was out there persecuting African Americans left and right. And yet, when he responded to that incident, he didn't arrest OJ. Mm -hmm. He let him go. Absolutely. And, you know, I definitely, obviously, Mark Furman had some personal issues and had some problems as far as, you know, some of his prejudices. I don't want to get it wrong. I definitely believe that Mark Furman had some issues with that. But, I mean, obviously, in this case, I believe that maybe he was – he probably – the evidence is just too much to speak that, you know, you could really – reasonably believe that it was anything but. But, I mean, a jury of his peers acquitted him, so, I mean, we'll get into that here in a minute, but I kind of want to set the stage (laughs) before we get into 1994. Let's go ahead and talk about the uh, backdrop number one of OJ. OJ, obviously, you alluded to it earlier, growing up in the slums in Oakland, California, and then he really hit the national scene first when he was in, at USC. You know, he became everybody's favorite All-American at USC, right. and you know, he took off from there, became one of the greatest running backs in Buffalo Bills history, uh, in NFL history, actually. You know, his name is still spoken with, um, with uh, reverence as far as the NFL and the football players go. But, uh, you know, one thing we actually talked about at work one day that I think maybe you may be able to answer for me. I'm not too sure in doing my research. I couldn't find 100%. Is O.J. Simpson in the Pro Football Hall of Fame? You know, I honestly do not know. Um, I don't know whether he would have been eligible for induction at the time of the murders. Because he was mm-hmm. hired, uh, he he went from the Buffalo Bills to the 49ers. Right. And I think he was only at the 49ers about two years. So mm-hmm. uh, he may not have been eligible for induction. And I think once mm-hmm. the murders happened, he was not going to be ever be inducted. Right. Because Absolutely. you have to remember, a year after the jury verdict in the criminal trial, there was a jury verdict in the civil trial finding him responsible for the deaths of Nicole Brown and Ronald Goldman. Absolutely, absolutely. And let's go ahead and talk about Nicole. A lot of people don't know Nicole's story prior to O.J. What's the story on Nicole prior to O.J.? Uh, Nicole and her sister Denise were born in Germany. Their father was Working in Germany, he met their mother, Juditha. Uh, They got married. Denise and Nicole were born in 19, I believe, 55, 56, and Nicole was born in 59. Uh, If you look at pictures of them, they look like twins. Uh, They were like Mutt and Jeff. They were very close. They moved back to the United States, and... uh, had two more sisters, Dominique and Tanya, and then a brother, Rolf. And I think there are a couple half-siblings out there. They all grew up in Orange County, California. And when Nicole was 17, she met uh, O.J. while working at a place, a club called The Daisy. 
Right, right. He said and, what? He, I believe Sunday he said that he met her the night that him and his wife had decided to get a divorce, maybe? Is that, or correct. the night that and, and said she was pregnant? I'll, I'll bet, yes, you asked Miss Marguerite uh, Simpson. She will probably have a completely different version of that story because uh, it, uh his his version of things is meant to make him look better in the public eye. Right. So, of course, he's going to say, but Marguerite and I were over and done. We were getting a divorce. And then I met Nicole. When in reality, it's probably he was cheating on Marguerite with Nicole, the way he cheated on Nicole with other women. Right, right. And let's go ahead and get into those allegations because it kind of speaks a little bit as to why some people believe Mr. Goldman was there and why I guess O.J. may have believed Mr. Goldman was there. There was a part in an episode of the series The People versus O.J. Simpson where – and I, the woman's name escapes me, but she was going to be a state's witness, and she chooses to write a book instead so they couldn't use her or the prosecution refused to use her. Ms. Marshall refused that- Loser. And she made a lot yeah. of accusations of Brentwood hellos and things like that. Right. Uh, that is that was a friend of, Yeah. That was a friend of Nicole's by the name of Faye Resnick. Right, right. And Faye Resnick had a pretty substantial drug problem mm-hmm. at that time. And, in fact, I believe she had just left for rehab just prior to the murders. Okay. Um, I think that Faye's story of Nicole was probably pretty much embellished mm-hmm. and designed to capitalize on the tragedy. Right. Because right. she did write that, I mean... It was, you know, not even months, and she had gotten a contract and written that book before the trial, right before the trial started. Um, right, completely. Let's be honest here. If my best friend got murdered, I'm pretty sure that I wouldn't be writing a tell-all book the next within no, any sort no. of. And you know, for for me, a, mm-hmm. if friend had experimented with drugs. I would not put that in the book. Absolutely I, I don't, not. I, I don't believe most of the allegations about drug use and Nicole come from O.J. Simpson or right. allegedly from friends of Nicole who told O.J. Simpson. Mm-hmm. But members of her family did, certainly didn't know and didn't suspect anything. And frankly, everybody describes her as an awesome mother. And drug addicts, like what OJ says Nicole would be, make good mothers. No, absolutely not. And that's one of the things, you know, a lot of people, I alluded to it a moment ago, but a lot of people that believed OJ's story, I should say, believed that uh, there was a possible affair going on between Ron Goldman 
and Miss uh, Nicole. Have we ever Correct. established whether that's fact or is that still kind of innuendo? No, that is actually that was an early theory, but it's it was pretty well established through testimony of uh, people at Mezzaluna mm-hmm. and uh, family members of Nicole that. She was a she was a frequent customer at the restaurant. She was friends with members of the staff. She was, I think, a very nice lady. Um, yeah. And so, you know, she didn't think of herself as, you know, I'm Nicole Brown Simpson. I'm better than you. Don't talk to me. Right. Like OJ. So um, yeah. he was nearly, her mother had left, her, had lost a pair of glasses or sunglasses while they were at dinner. She contacted mm-hmm. Mezzaluna. Staff at Mezzaluna found the glasses, and Ron Goldman volunteered to bring them to Nicole's when he got off work that evening. So he really was. He was going over there to give her the glasses, and that so would have been... OJ probably presumed that he was there. Time. Right. Pardon? I said, unfortunately, one of those wrong place, wrong time situations. Correct. It was exactly. And it was, you know, I, I one of the theories is that OJ was already attacking Nicole when mm-hmm. Ron arrived. And, in, or even that he started attacking Nicole right after Ron, after she let Ron in. Mm-hmm. He didn't go out the gate and run. He he went, you know, he weighed in and he tried to help Nicole when he could have run right out the gate. Right. While OJ was busy with Nicole. So, yeah, um, yeah I mean, he was, you know, doing a favor and wrong place, wrong time and tried to do the right thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, Let's go ahead and get into the meat and taters of this case right now. Let's go ahead and get into the crime. I mean, at 12.10 a.m. on June 13, 1994, the bodies of Nicole and Ron Goldman were found outside of the Bundy condo. And I believe, and I mean, I get very confused when listening to the story of how they were discovered, but I believe there was a dog that was wailing outside of the condo that alerted its owner that uh well and then when he came to investigate something he found the bodies what um let's see the somebody was walking his dog and Mm -hmm. nicole's dog kato and akita was wandering in the street and he noticed blood on the paws of the dog okay they went back, looked in, and I mean this this crime scene was horrific. Oh yes, I've seen pictures. Many, all you have to many do detectives. If you're that kind of thing, just Google search. Right. All you all these days many, are a Google search away, and they're terrible. Yeah. And you know, many detectives have said it is one of the worst crime scenes they have ever seen. Um. And Nicole's body was at the bottom of the stairs, and Ron's body was off to the side, 
uh, on a little patch of ground cover by a tree very near the mm-hmm. gate. Um, there was right. blood everywhere. It was just, it, like I said, it was horrific. Right, you can imagine. And I mean, not it's too graphic or anything, but you can imagine when they say that Nicole was partially decapitated, how much blood that there correct. really was. Correct. And I, I read somewhere she lost seven-eighths of the blood in her body. Um, I don't know how much that is equates to. And, and Ron Goldman, unfortunately, was also... They both had multiple stab wounds. Um, multiple right. incised wounds. Ron had multiple defensive wounds on his hands and arms. So, bless his heart, he fought as hard as he could fight. Right. Um, and one thing I and, do want to address just, as well, one thing I do want to address as well, because we kind of got into talking about it, like I said, at work, and some of the males actually said, you know, that what they think happened was that they could that OJ came over, saw another man, and got so incensed because she had a man at a place that he was paying for. I want to address that right there. In my opinion, and this may just strictly be my opinion, but it is never, even if you know you walk in on your woman in bed with somebody else as angry as you may be, it's never okay to do that to somebody in any I, way, shape. I have personally never believed that theory because OJ wore a cap over his head, and this is in June in Southern California. Mm -hmm. He had gloves on, and he was carrying a knife that was a pretty significant weapon. Mm -hmm. He did not just happen to see Ron Goldman going in the gate and become incensed and grab all these things out of his car on the spur of the moment. He was wearing dark clothing. He was wearing the cap. He was wearing the gloves. He had that knife. He went over there Mm -hmm. intent on killing Nicole. I believe her Mm -hmm. rejection of him, as well as her exclusion of him from the family dinner that night, Right. Him. He left the recital, the daughter's recital. He went home and he stewed on it the rest of the day until around 10 o'clock at night, he decided this is it. She's going to pay. Right. And in typical abuser fashion, he felt he had a right to do that. He may have been paying the bills as a, as a terms of their divorce, but they were divorced. And that's right. one of the things that has always angered me about OJ is that he felt he had a right to go to her home and confront her about her behavior, who she was dating, who she was talking to, who she was hanging out with. Frankly, it was none of his damn business. Right. Just absolutely. At that point, his life was none of her business. Right, exactly. And so... um, no, I don't think that he saw a guy coming in. I think he was there to kill Nicole. And, mm-hmm. you know, if Ron Goldman had been 10 minutes later, he would have found Nicole's body, but he would have survived. 
Right. He was collateral damage. He was collateral. And, again, he was collateral damage because he did the right thing and tried to help his friend. Mm-hmm. And that's absolutely so, interesting to even that as far as that goes. Mm-hmm. That, that's just I completely unexpected. Yeah. As well, I said, that's kinda, what makes it more tragic. We kind of talked about even, the the scene at Bundy already. And, you know, right. one piece of evidence we haven't talked about is obviously the glove that was found. But let's talk about Rockingham. So I believe the uh, the police officials were going over to notify OJ of Nicole's passing, and that's Correct. when they discovered they happened upon the white Bronco, and they uh, blood smears. Correct. Now was it Furman who discovered the blood smears, jumped the wall, mm-hmm. and then discovered everything else? No, no. What happened? Uh, Tom Lang and Philip Van Adder were kind of the major crimes detectives from robbery homicide that Mm -hmm. were assigned to the case. Um, Mark Furman and his partner, whose name I can't remember, uh, were also, it was their call because it was in their division. Right. Uh, So they were all four kind of, you know, working together. And a lot of homicide, you know, detectives, They'll work together if there's overlapping jurisdiction for some reason or, or, you know, just they one gets assigned and headquarters decides somebody else needs to be on it. Um, and a lot of the offices work as a team, not just one detective. So they had, the four of them had gone to Rockingham to notify OJ. They were outside. Mm-hmm. There was a Bronco parked on the street, white Bronco. Uh, it was registered to Hertz Corporation, and mm-hmm. it was parked like somebody parked it in a hurry. Uh, I think the right. front tires were on the on the grass, and the back tires were sticking out in the street. And I believe behind the Bronco there were blood drops, and mm-hmm. those blood drops continued up to the driveway and then inside the gate. Mm-hmm. And at that time, they had been, you know, buzzing the intercom, and nobody was answering them. Right. So they feared from the blood drops on the street and the blood drops that they could uh, see on the driveway that OJ or someone else might be in that house injured and in need of help. So that's uh, called exigent circumstances. And that gives them the right to enter the private property uh, to confirm that there's nobody who needs immediate medical attention uh, there. You know, were they to find OJ's body on the lawn, they would have had to exit the property and go get a search warrant. Okay. They wouldn't have been able to. uh, They wouldn't have been able to start investigating immediately because they have a body now. And it's officially a crime scene? Correct. It would make it a crime scene, and the warrant would be to ensure that any evidence they find or seize in connection with their investigation doesn't get suppressed down the line. Right. O.J. Simpson's attorneys did try to get all of the Rockingham evidence suppressed because of Mm -hmm. the warrantless entry. 
onto the property. Right. Uh, and but in you know they entered the property and then in trying to locate OJ or anybody else who might need help, they followed more blood drops to the front door, in the foyer, and then up in OJ's bedroom. And it was actually right. that that led them when they didn't find anyone hurt or injured that led them to think, okay, we need to, you know, back out and get a warrant. Mm-hmm. So, so let's talk about these detectives. Obviously everybody knows Furman. He's probably the most um the right. most recognizable. But let's go ahead Correct. and talk about this team of detectives that had such a massive crime scene to uh go over and come over. Uh Let's go ahead and meet the team, so to speak. Who were the people working this case? There was Tom Lang and Philip Van Adder. They were both veterans of LAPD uh, investigations. Uh, They were on, I think, robbery homicide, and they were kind of on whatever they called the major case squad at that time. So they handled high-profile Um. And as I said, they were veterans. I mean, they had probably 20, 20 years apiece or more with LAPD. Uh, they right. wrote a great book about the case. Uh, and it, I, it's, I would recommend it to read. I'm going to post the titles and Amazon links on the, the uh, WordPress page because that is one of the better books about the O.J. Simpson case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there was Mark Furman and his partner. They were with Wiltshire Division. And the murders occurred in their division. So right. that was why they were there. And then there were, there were multiple crime scene techs and uh, the coroner's office and... Uh, there were probably multiple detectives who did a lot and never got noticed. There were the first officers on the scene who secured it. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, those first officers on the scene at Bundy observed only one glove. Right. And there were photographs that showed only one glove. Right. And they were there long before Furman showed up. Okay. Okay. Now, obviously, you know, you said that they thought that OJ may have been hurt when they hopped the wall and things like that. Correct. Once they established OJ wasn't, I believe OJ wasn't home at the time. Once they established that OJ wasn't home, did he automatically become the prime suspect? Yes, and that is kind of standard operating procedure in the murder of any spouse or former spouse, the spouse of the husband is going to be the prime suspect or the wife is going to be the prime suspect. Um, And once you eliminate... Especially in one... Correct. They they would have a motive. They would have opportunity. Uh, Once you eliminate them, then you move out and, and look at other people within that circle. Because the mm-hmm. majority of murders are committed by 
perpetrators who are known to their victim. Right. Um, Absolutely. But yeah, he, he became the wound. He became got to realize. You got to realize the wounds are personal on Nicole and uh, not really Ron, I guess. But I mean, the, the, just looking at what happened, it looks personal to me. Correct, and that is the the, you know, they they tried to pin it on Colombian drug lords and generally Colombian hits, even mafia hits, they do what it takes to get the job done. Mm-hmm. They don't torture somebody by repeatedly stabbing them in the upper thigh. Right. Uh, they don't, they don't torture someone with, with shallow cuts. Uh, you know, no. And, and it no. was personal. Stabbing is actually very, very personal. Right. You've got to be close. The person's got to you know, mm-hmm. not necessarily see you, I guess, if your face is covered, but, I mean, you got to be close to them to be able to stab them, whereas, you know, you get a right. little bit of space when you're shooting somebody. Yeah. And the theory is that O.J. Um, inflicted some of the wounds from behind. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe they, they think he cut their throats from behind. And so I'm just mm-hmm. going to put it out there. He didn't even have the balls to look them in the eyes. When he killed them. And that's a coward to me. Oh, I believe that he cut their throats first. They probably fell. And they probably saw who it was, you know, as they were dying with the multiple stabbings. Yeah. It's going to take a bit to bleed out. And I'm sure Nicole knew damn well who it was. Correct. Correct. But, but we, like I said, he didn't, we, have, he didn't have the balls to look him in the eye. Yes, exactly, exactly. But we talk about uh, terms in this, uh, in, you know, as far as judicial cases and things, probable cause. Let's go ahead and talk about the probable cause in this case. Obviously, to me, and I could be off base as far as what probable cause is, but let's be honest, O.J. sees his ex-wife, who he's still obsessed with, and another man in the house, or, you know, goes over there and, is so incensed, you know, like you said, by the fact that he wasn't being included in family activities anymore, things like that, and you get what you got. Correct. Probable cause is a reasonable belief that a crime was committed, was about to be committed. Uh, It's not beyond a reasonable doubt or, or even really more than enough information to lead you to believe that a crime was about to be committed or a crime had been committed. Mm-hmm. Or that the person that is about to be under arrest committed the crime. And in this case, the DNA results from the sock found in OJ's bedroom as well as the blood evidence found inside the Bronco, which contained mixtures of Nicole, Ron, and OJ's blood, that was probable cause to issue a warrant for OJ's arrest for murder. Okay. Because that blood connects. The socks were found inside OJ's house, presumably having come off of his feet. Right. 
and the blood now, in the Bronco, which was the vehicle he used to leave the crime scene. Right. Now, by the time, uh, by the time the, uh, by the time the arrest is being made and things like that, uh, I believe it was Shapiro was already retained by Mr. Simpson, and he had, he had, uh, he had uh, negotiated. Robert Shapiro had negotiated a uh, his client to be able to uh, turn himself in. Correct. And this is nothing correct. that was out of the ordinary for him, if I'm remembering correctly, based on the people versus O.J. And O.J. failed to turn himself in is when it became something out of the ordinary. Because I believe Robert or you know John Travolta as Robert Shapiro said he had negotiated you know tons of these before, and it had never gone wrong. Correct. Correct. Now, uh, originally that was he was S.O.P. for Shapiro. Originally, he was going to turn himself in at Rockingham, correct? Is that um, why the cops showed I up recall, at Rockingham? As I recall, Shapiro and Kardashian were supposed to bring him to Parker Center. Mm-hmm. If I recall correctly. Okay. Uh, or bring him and, to whatever station was was near... Rockingham. And, and when he doesn't... Was, mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, I was about to... I was about to go... To go there. What happened is A.C. Cowlings was there and mm-hmm. O.J. tells A.C., let's get in the Bronco, let's go, and leaves with A.C. Cowlings. Allegedly without Robert Kardashian... Robert Shapiro, uh, wait. Shapiro, yeah. I don't remember, I've got, yeah, Robert Kardashian, Rob, or any of the other multiple people. I mean, I think his daughter Arnell was there. His son Jason was there. His mama was there. I mean, you know, the house was full, and nobody notices AC and OJ sneaking off in AC's Bronco, which is identical to OJ's. Um, Right. And so OJ's story is that he just wanted to go to Rockingham and go home. But when he got there, it was surrounded by media. So then he wanted okay. to go to Nicole's grave. They weren't at Rockingham originally when it began. They were at Oh no, no, house. sorry. They were at they were at Kardashian's house. Okay. Okay, I remember yeah. now because uh because I believe, according to the show, uh, they scared Kim or one of the kids, correct? And when AC stormed in, and then they jumped out of the back of the house. Wait, I'm I'm not sure. Or they didn't. That's jump not out ringing any bells. Back, correct. I'm not really sure how they got out. Uh. You know, knowing OJ, they could have both walked out the front door, and knowing Bob mm-hmm. Shapiro, that wouldn't have bothered him at all, because Bob Shapiro okay. was not above playing games. Okay, first I've never, <laughs> you know, according to the show, you know, Rob seemed like a pretty straightforward guy, especially when it came to Cochran, and we're going to get Kardashian. into Cochran a little bit, but 
I believe that Kardashian realized if you look at his face when the verdict is announced, I think he knew O.J. was guilty. Oh, yeah, by that point, I mean, and you show it. And was torn by loyalty. Show. But as I understand it, after the verdict, he never had anything to do with O.J. again. That's actually exactly what I've heard was he pretty much distanced himself from OJ after that. Right. And, you know, right. I hate to to be I hate to have any sort of feelings, but apparently it kind of hurt OJ, so to speak, when Rob did that. But we're talking about uh, the obviously now we're getting into the infamous Bronco chase with uh, a, mm-hmm. a uh, Al Callings and Al OJ. Callings, uh, AC. AC, uh, they were originally going to Nicole's grave, correct? And then once they well, got near Nicole's grave, he said, no, 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 no. I want to go see my mom at Rockingham, correct? Right. Again, you know, all we have are AJ's sto- OJ stories. Um, Al Cowling is one of his best friends from childhood and won't violate confidence. So uh, all we know is what O.J. says, and in my opinion, if O.J.'s lips are moving, he's lying. He's trying to paint himself in the best light. So the thing that um, is kind of funny is that in that Bronco was a gun, a disguise, mm-hmm. and several okay. thousand dollars in cash. And a lot of people and they were heading, originally that he was heading toward the border, correct? He was he was heading south. Mm-hmm. And so in the middle, um in the rush hour traffic, mind you. Yeah, that yeah, that was a really brilliant plan, yeah. Um Yeah. But uh he he, he got I, an escort I, to he got an escort correct. to Rockingham to say the least. <laughs> Correct. That's but, the, and the whole story about I, I wanted to go to Nicole's grave. I was going to kill myself at her grave because I, you know, I loved her so much. He's a narcissist. He's not going to kill himself. You know, he he's the only thing that matters in this world as far as right. he's concerned. Um, and that's another thing that, that irks me about Nicole. She was not a person to him. She was a possession. Absolutely. And, you know, I remember, and I don't know how accurate this is, but obviously in the portrayal on People versus O.J., he had his kids' pictures, I believe, with them. And I want to say it was Nicole that he had pictures in the Bronco with him. Correct, but, like, those were props. Those were props. Right. To make his story sound believable, mhm, you know that he wasn't gonna sit staring at pictures of Nicole and the kids, right, but frankly, I don't think he ever really wanted children at all from anybody. I think what he wanted was a woman who would be at his beck and call twenty four seven mhm, and when those women dared to have children, that was a problem. Because they, the children got in the way. I see what you mean. Correct. I see what you mean. And so, in his mind, mm-hmm. he should be more than enough. 
They don't need children. Right, right. Um, so eventually this whole low-speed chase ends at Rockingham, and I want to kind of get into something because there was a show done, I want to say, a little over a year ago, maybe it was a little under a year ago, that uh, pointed the finger at another gentleman to have helped O.J., and that being the uh, infamous, you know, there's an infamous video of O.J.'s oldest son running up when the Bronco gets to Rockingham, running up to the Bronco. Uh, have you, number one, I want to know, do you ha- have you seen that show with the, uh, with the gentleman who uh, was a P.I. in Texas? And what do you make of that? Do you believe that O.J. could have had help in all of this? Um, I have not seen that show. I've kind of heard about it, but, you know, I don't think his oldest son, Jason, was involved. Right. Um, I, I, I just, I don't know what Jason's whereabouts were, but I don't think he needed his son. And mm-hmm. as I understand it, Nicole had been in Jason and Arnell's life, lives when they were children and they Mm -hmm. weren't very fond of her. There were not issues between OJ's kids and Nicole. And she was really good with kids. So, you know, good with her own, good with other people. Her nieces and nephews all adored her. And so I don't, I don't think Jason Simpson was involved. I don't think Arnell was involved. I think they were as shocked by the accusation because the problem with a person like O.J. Simpson is they wear a mask. Mm -hmm. And very few people ever see the real person under that mask. Okay. For O.J., it's spouses and girlfriends. They're the ones who see it. The kids don't necessarily get to see it. Mm-hmm. Now, until so OJ called, go ahead. I, and so they, you know, they don't see it unless they end up pissing him off about something. If they cross him, they'll see it. But as long as they go along with the program and don't question him and do as he says and, and not as he does, they're okay. Now, until they found AC and OJ beforehand, there were media reports that OJ was had committed suicide, and actually so much so that Rob and uh, both Robs believed that he would had killed himself and went as far as to read a suicide note on live television. Am I remembering <laughs> this correctly? I don't believe there were rumors that he had killed himself. He had apparently left behind a self-serving letter mm-hmm. that was characterized as a suicide note or a suicide letter. Um, and, you know, basically it was, I didn't have anything to do with this. I'm innocent. The world's treating me so badly now. I don't want to deal with it anymore. I love Nicole. Blah, 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 wah, wah, wah. And then he signs it. Why don't you people believe me? I'm OJ with a happy face. Right. People who are depressed and going to kill themselves do not sign their suicide letter with a happy face. 
It doesn't right. happen. Right. Uh, usually again, they're not it was, the happiest frame of mind. And, you know, something that the publisher or editor who worked with him on the book said he is manipulative. Mm-hmm. But he's so slick and so charming, sometimes you don't even realize how you're being manipulated. Right. He's a very he's a very elegant eloquent speaker, so to speak. I got I definitely got that from him. Like he you could easily if you didn't know who O. J. Simpson was, you could easily listen to at least the first part of that interview and say, Hey, this is a likable guy. You know what I'm saying? Well, for me I, I guess I would have to not know him. For me his effect was off. He was mm-hmm. saying things and laughing, and I'm thinking, you know, it's really not funny. He's talking right. about the incident with that, with Nicole's car, mm-hmm. which is yeah, where he said, we're talking, we're talking, and I have the bat. Why are you talking to your girlfriend with a bat in your hand? That's not normal. Yeah, that's a red flag. Yeah, that's a red and flag. <laughs> I was just kind of bouncing it off the car. Why are you talking to your girlfriend with a bat in your hand, bouncing it off of her car? That is not normal. That's threatening. Correct. Exactly. It's threatening. If he wanted her, I think she had been out. He decided she was out screwing around because he's an adulterer and he's not faithful. And so, of course, she's not going to be faithful. And so he's accusing her of that, and she's probably saying, OJ, I was out getting groceries. They're in the car. What is going on? And he's, you know, he was like a raging bull. I can imagine when he got angry, if you listen to that 911 tape, he's like a raging bull, and he's not listening to anybody. Absolutely. And so, So, you know, she's not going to say, she's not going to be able to tell him anything. And but meanwhile, he's got a bat in his hand, and he's beating the shit out of a car. Right, it's and she probably. Things, you know, it's one of those things. I'd be scared. Came up to a bat, mm-hmm. especially somebody of OJ stature. Oh, uh, I'm scrappy. I probably would have got the bat out of his hands and kneecapped him. <laughs> so, my temper, that would have just made me so mad. <laughs> Um, but, you know, Nicole was a gentle soul, and so she she did not think of retaliation. Right, absolutely not. Nicole from, you know, and that's the thing, even if Nicole did think about retaliation, let's be honest, it's the mismatch of all mismatches. You've got a guy who's Correct. been lifting and is twice her size versus her little skinny, dreary, well, you know, yeah, this is this is where my background with very tough women comes in handy. Because what you lack in size, strength, and weight, you make up for with a weapon. Right. And and you know, a cast iron frying pan upside the head, that's an equalizer. Absolutely. 
Well, Lisa, <laughs> let's go ahead and tie all the loose ends up before the we actually get into the okay. trial here of our number one of the uh, Claire and Convincing podcast on O.J. Simpson. Uh, all right. Is it with order once they pull up at Rockingham that he goes ahead and, you know, I noticed in the uh, portrayal on People versus O.J., he kind of lingered in the uh, he kind of lingered in the Bronco for a little while, talking to everybody, saying I believe he threatened one more time that he was going to kill himself, and then uh, I believe Kardashian went and stood in the open doorway, uh, talking to Correct. him. Correct. You know, obviously officers to let their uh, to drop their weapons. Or to, you know, Correct. take him off. And, you know, when he finally does get out, and I don't, you know, I haven't seen the footage of him getting out yet, but uh, when he does finally get out of the vehicle, the whole way to the uh, front door, he's saying, you know, I'm sorry, guys, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do all this, and so on and so forth. Kind of like he's trying to, you know, oh, I'm sorry, guys, you know, I, I'm sorry, I didn't know any better, yeah. I didn't mean to leave. Right, you know that that's all that's all to save face. Right, his plan his plan to flee to Mexico didn't work. The whole world is watching. He sits in the in the truck like a petulant child, refusing to get out. And you know when you when you look at that though, even then. LAPD was not treating him the way they would have treated any regular black male. Oh, absolutely. In, the any part of that black city. If he would have gotten out of the vehicle, he would have been tackled to the ground. They would have, they would have pulled him out of the vehicle. They would have thrown him to oh. the ground. They would have coughed him. They were deferential to OJ. And that's absolutely. the thing that incenses me about the claims of racial bias made by his attorneys. What do you trial. think played more of a what do you think played more of a factor in that though, Lisa? Was it the fact that Rodney King had just happened recently or was it the fact that this is O. J. Freakin' Simpson and we don't want to blow his head off on live T V, you know, putting it bluntly? <gasps> I think it was more, you know, this is O.J. Simpson and the whole world is watching. And we don't want to blow his head off on TV, but it was, it's O.J. Simpson. So they were, they, like and you I said, know, they were deferential to him. He was he, still he, at that point, even though he was being accused of murder, he was still a he was still, as he was one, a celebrity. you know, a hero. Right. Yeah. And, you know, what... What a lot of people don't realize, living in Little Rock and New Orleans and, uh, you know, anywhere else in the country except maybe New York City and and Los Angeles is, celebrities in New York City and Los Angeles are the bread and butter Mm -hmm. for everything that goes on in those cities. Correct. So, you know, that, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Skin color was not a factor in any way, shape, or form in how he was treated. Right. 
And so to allege that he was being framed because he was African-American or black or, you know, whatever, is mm-hmm. just ridiculous. Again, Mark Furman, or- the racist of all time, did not arrest the black guy who took a baseball bat to his white girlfriend's car. What is wrong with that picture? Absolutely. Anybody I've known with racial, you know, racist tendencies, they do not like any type of mixed relationship. Asian and white, they don't like it. Latin American and white, they don't like it. African American and white, they really don't like it. And you you pull up and you see, you know, a white man with a a white woman, excuse me, with a black man, you're obviously going to be on guard. But we're going to get into Furman more so in the uh, in the trial here in the next hour. We're about to take our first commercial break here. We're at a little bit over halftime. Lisa, we will be right back with the case here on Clear and Convincing. Great. Are you looking for the best deals for your vaping needs and accessories? Then check out the guys at Sub Ohm Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub Ohm Vapors, located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas, want to see you. Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub Ohm Vapors. Vape it like you built it. And we're back. Yes, ma'am, we sure are back here on Clear and Convincing, talking about O.J. Simpson. And we're going to get into this hour, the trial of the century, as it was called, in O.J. Simpson, in the criminal trial that ensued. 
so to speak. So let's go ahead and, you know, dive right on in, Lisa. Uh, as far as OJ goes, let's go ahead and start looking at the people who were, you know, tagged with proving without a reasonable doubt that uh, OJ Simpson committed these murders. Let's go ahead and look at uh, – her last name escapes me, but Marsha and uh, – and I can never remember the gentleman's name who was her uh, co-prosecutor in this case. There was Marsha Harmon, uh, Marsha Clark, and Christopher Darden. Marsha was very experienced, very, very able prosecutor. Christopher Darden also had a lot of experience. I believe he worked in uh, uh, a drug court. Type office, um, but they right. were both right. very I good prosecutors. He had out of the prosecutor's office at that point and came back for this, correct? On a favor to Marsha? Uh, no, I believe he was brought into the division Marsha worked in from this other this other section that he worked in. Uh, it's been a while since I read uh, their two books that explains the. They had worked together, I guess, before. Mm-hmm. And but they like said they were both very good prosecutors, very intelligent, very hardworking. Oh, absolutely! And I mean, just looking Sunday, I'm not sure if those uh, interviews were filmed new for the uh, for the special on Sunday, or whether they were filmed all the way back in 2004, I believe it would have been. But you can they see, were, no, you they know, were filmed still. Yes. They were filmed by they were done by Soledad O'Brien for the the Sunday special. Okay. And you can see Yeah. You can see Darden still clearly, you know, believes without a shred of doubt that, you know, in OJ's guilt. And I believe just like ninety percent of America has come to believe in his guilt. Now, a lot of was made, at least in the people versus OJ, about the venue. And the venue, uh, the defense that we'll get into here in a minute, was very keen on having a quote-unquote urban venue, or they really liked the fact that they were downtown. And Marsha, at one point, the uh, I believe it was the deputy, or maybe it was the police chief in Los Angeles, had asked Marsha maybe she should move it. do you feel like that was a miscalculation of Marsha's opinion? Because Marsha well, definitely came off on the show as a very staunch and unrelenting that she was going to get it done no matter what. Right. I think, and if I recall correctly from her book, the decision of where to have the trial held was made by the by the district attorney, the chief of the office, not by Marsha Clark. And it was made for a lot of reasons. The courthouse where the case would have been tried was in Santa Monica. And it was not up to the public interest or the media scrutiny that was going to come with O.J. Simpson on trial for double murder, capital murder, facing the death penalty. So that was the first consideration. The Los Angeles courthouse downtown could handle the media, could handle the public interest, could handle the defense attorneys, 
had room for everybody that needed to uh, be there and also the security measures in place to handle the additional put traffic in and out of the building, et cetera. Again, I don't think Marsha Clark had any say in that decision. That was made probably before she was even assigned the case. Okay, um, okay. Maybe that was one of those things that they added, you know, for drama to the show. Because let's be honest, there were probably quite a few creative liberties like Darden and Marsha <laughs> kind of being romantic and stuff. Creative liberties to add drama. Correct. Probably so. Um, and well, so, like I said, the, the venue, it wasn't – and I think they knew even when they chose the downtown courthouse, they knew that was going to present an issue with jurors. Right. Because they weren't going to get the jury that they would have gotten in Santa Monica. Well, absolutely um, not. I just don't think about Santa Monica. You think about rich white right. folks and you think about – downtown Los Angeles, you think close to, you know, not necessarily the slums or anything, but, you know, you're going to get a more quote-unquote urban uh, jury. Correct. And also, I think the other reason for the choosing downtown was because they knew this was going to be a pretty long, drawn-out trial, they were going to need a very large jury pool. And again, Mm -hmm. Santa Monica could not have uh, accommodated a large jury pool. Hey, yeah, absolutely not. Santa Monica, I believe, is a small community, and just about any city in America is going to be small compared to the city of Los right. Angeles. Right. But even uh, just having I'm a place a- for all the jurors to be in between during breaks and things like that. I mean, not just the number of people, but the facilities to accommodate those people. Right. Right, and we're going to talk about the jury here in a little bit because obviously they got a little angry, you know, being sequestered for so long. But I want to talk about real quick another man who I think did a masterful job in his job performance, and that's the judge on this case. I believe with all things considered, he did a masterful job of keeping this whole court in order and – not really trying to allow outside forces to affect what happened. I tend to disagree somewhat. Um, Mm -hmm. Something a lot of people may not know is that at the time of OJ's trial, Lance Ito was married to one of the highest ranking women in LAPD. Absolutely. And, Based on my reading and, uh, you know, reading trial transcripts and some of his decisions and even some of the bench conferences that were were had when objections were made and things were being argued while the jury was present in the courtroom, I think he was a little bit afraid of the defense team. They had waived Mm -hmm. the conflict of interest with having Ito preside over the case. But I think he was afraid that if he uh, made one too many rulings against them, that they would complain, and then the you know the appellate court would say that was a conflict that couldn't have been waived. Right. I right. think you Lance know, Ito should have taken this. himself off off the case when they started making allegations against LAPD. 
So you think that Ito that was one of the uh, that that was one of the uh, so to speak um, miscalculations for the prosecution is the fact that Ito was on the bench. I yeah, and I I think it was a miscalculation, but I think Judge Ito should have removed himself once they started making allegations about rampant corruption in LAPD LAPD crime lab. I think he should have said, okay, let's get somebody else in here. Um, He did do a good job to a degree, but there are things he let the defense get away with that they should not have gotten away with. And we'll get to one of those things a little bit later. Right, right. Well, let's go ahead and get into it. The dream team, so to speak. And, you know, in most sports fans, they think about Michael Jordan and the 92 Olympics U.S. basketball team. But we're talking about O.J. Simpson's defense counsel here. We got, we're going to go one by one here. Robert Shapiro, he was the uh, lead dog. He's, you know, called the architect of the Simpson defense for building this high-profile legal team that would later be dubbed, obviously, the Dream Team. Now Shapiro is the co-founder of RightCounsel.com and is the senior partner of Los Angeles-based law firm Glazer, Wheel, Fink, Jacobs, Howard, Avchin, and Shapiro, LLP. And he also co-founded LegalZoom. Wow, that's a uh, quite a, you know, quite a uh, transcript there for him. And it's a mouthful, but... Robert Shapiro, you know, this wasn't his first high-profile case. Correct. Um, He had been around the block, so to speak. Right. But, you know, he was pushed out by Johnny Cochran. Because one of the problems with the defense team, and unfortunately it did not work to benefit the prosecution, was you had two alpha dogs. And they both wanted to run the show. Cochran and Shapiro. But what ended up happening is is Johnny became the alpha. And Robert Shapiro kind of became the omega. I mean, he was in the courtroom, but you didn't see him questioning. You didn't see him questioning witnesses. He didn't do a lot of strategy. Uh, I think there are a couple scenes in the movie where... Yeah, there are a couple of scenes in the movie where they had meetings and, and strategized, and he wasn't there. And that pissed yeah, him absolutely. off. You know? And that's the one, but, you know, he was one of the most famous things that I remember from the show was where he came in and he repeatedly liked to say, I'm the lead attorney here. And he has a point. He was the lead attorney in this case. Correct. But he didn't, he didn't have the, uh, he didn't have the clout to maintain it because he was not an he was not a a litigator. He was an attorney who settled, who worked the plea, mm-hmm. and at one point who, he wanted you know, OJ to uh, take a plea deal. Correct, correct. But and um, John- OJ wasn't going to do that. Yep, and Johnny put the squash on that as well pretty quick and. Right now, let's talk about Johnny. You know, he joined the Simpson defense team and later took over as its chair during the trial. But what he's most famous for, and probably not only in just this trial, but in his life, 
he's the man who said, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit, referencing that fact that the glove didn't fit O.J. Simpson's hand. And that must mean right. that he wasn't the murderer. Obviously, Cochran was really diagnosed with a tumor and died in December 2000, or excuse me, died in March of 2005. But uh, Cochran's legacy really is those words. If the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. Unfortunately, there are a lot of reasons why the glove didn't fit, and none of them have anything to do with O.J. being innocent. Absolutely. And Uh, Robert Kardashian... Do what? Uh, I said that that's another story for a little bit later. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We're going to talk about the uh, glove not fitting before we get off the air tonight. I can guarantee you that because there's a lot of reasons or quote-unquote, you know, uh, there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there as to why it didn't fit. But let's be honest mm-hmm. here. It didn't have to fit. Now we got uh, – OJ's really close friend, you know, best friend, Robert Kardashian. And was he really in the show? He was more portrayed as an advisor. Was he technically a counsel to OJ in this case, or was he more of an advisor? I I believe he was more of an advisor, and I believe that he stayed out of loyalty to OJ. Mm -hmm. But he knew uh, that OJ was guilty. And that probably hurt his conscience and his heart a lot, especially seeing O.J. acting like he was innocent. Mm, Absolutely, absolutely. And we're going to kind of get into some of the lesser-known names now of the Dream Team. Barry Sheck, he was a law professor at Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law in New York City and is a forensic and DNA expert and he tried to help them harness the power of forensic and DNA evidence to assist in Simpson's defense. So he's also known, obviously, as the co-director of the Innocence Project. Everybody knows the Innocence Project. They helped, uh, obviously, in the West Memphis 3 case and other high-profile uh, cases. Even one we discussed last week, they tried to get him to uh, get involved in it. But let's talk about Barry. What was Barry's, quote-unquote, you know, I, I call they call it a dream team, so we're going to equate this to sports. What was Barry's, you know, play? What was his bread and butter in this defense team? What was he there for? Well, this is one of the many reasons that I have zero respect for the Innocence Project because it's not about freeing the innocent. In O.J. Simpson's case, Barry Sheck was there to diminish the DNA evidence that tied O.J. Simpson to the murders of Nicole Brown and Ronald Goldman. That was his sole purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he wasn't, it wasn't a noble purpose. He was helping a guilty man get off in spite of the fact that his guilt had been proven by DNA evidence multiple instances of DNA evidence in multiple places. His goal was to make it all look like it had been planted with innuendo and rumor and baseless allegations against crime line technicians and detectives who deserved a lot more respect. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I would definitely agree with that. Now, this next gentleman, he doesn't really get as much credit as what he deserves, but F. Lee Bailey, his most notable contribution was his cross-examination of Mark Furman, who we're going to get into, obviously, uh-huh. as I believe that was the biggest miscalculation in the uh, prosecution. But uh, Bailey said any lawyer in his right mind who would not be looking forward to cross-examining Furman is an idiot. And he's really right. Furman was a slam dunk that was offered up to the defense team. So, I mean, really, you know, while he may not have MVP in this dream team, F. Lee Bailey was definitely a key component in the defense. Yeah, he was he was his uh, career was kind of on the decline at the time. And so this mm-hmm. really got him back into the spotlight for a few more years. Uh, it, I, I am not really too fond of these men uh, because I, I think it was about publicity and winning mm-hmm. and not about the truth mm-hmm. and not about justice. Oh, yeah, obviously. I mean, they, once again, I alluded to it earlier. They took a, a, uh, a, a trial that was supposed to be about the evidence and turned it into basically a civil rights trial. Correct, exactly. For a man who had been treated deferentially by the LAPD every step of the way during that investigation. So... We're going to spend just a half a second on Carl Douglas because the way it looks, he was basically there because he was Johnny's right-hand man. Is that correct? Yes. That's the way it looks. But another very important piece to this defense comes from Peter Newfield, who was actually able to or try to discredit the uh, credibility of the blood trail between Nicole Brown Simpson's body in O.J. Simpson's vehicle. He's also another co-founder of the Innocence Project with Barry Shea. Correct. Correct. Let's talk about Pete. Uh, Pete obviously was able to do exactly what he wanted to do. He was able to, he was able to, uh, you know, discredit that evidence. You got to look at it as impressive what he was able to do as well. Well, I, I, I honestly don't see it as impressive. Because that, what that tells me is that Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld, or Neufeld, or however pronounce his name, uh, it's, it's not about truth or justice. Right. It's, it's about, about manipulating. It's about, no, it's not even discrediting. It's about manipulating things to win. This is something prosecutions are constantly being accused of. And yet here we see it in O.J. Simpson where if someone else had been charged and convicted of these murders and then 15 years down the line, uh, Newfeld and Sheck come in representing him and they had all this blood evidence from O.J., Nicole, Ron, they would have been you know, out to get this man out of prison and put O.J. in his place. Absolutely. So it's it's not, it wasn't about truth, and it's not about truth in their work with the Innocence Project. It's about manipulation. 
So under pretrial, after the dream team, you have the allegations listed. What allegations are we talking about? Are we talking about what charges were? That was, well, no, this is about uh, the allegations the defense team made about Mm -hmm. um, planting Simpson's blood at Bundy, planting the glove at Rockingham, Mm -hmm. planting blood in the Bronco. Uh, I mean, it was just everything, every bit of evidence against O.J. Simpson, they alleged, was planted to frame him for these murders that he didn't commit, which is incredibly ironic considering that he admitted to committing them. Right, right. Kind of one of the, uh, you know, sound bites that they used to hype up this last Sunday's interview was O.J. saying, oh, yeah, I took off the glove. And I forget what reason he said, but yeah, I think I took off the glove must, at that yeah. point or something. I and must he take it off because it was there. Yeah, he yeah. he kind of dismisses it. Uh-huh. Just complete yeah. insanity. But um, I mean, you know, before we get to, to me, what, I, let me. I just want to. I just want to wrap this up, especially with Sheck and New, Newfeld, and I hope they're listening. What they did with O.J. Simpson with the DNA evidence that was there was unethical, in my opinion. What it wasn't they should have done I'm not sure. He's still practicing now. So, uh, I mean, you know, with this amount of DNA evidence, what they should have done instead of holding press conferences and taking this case to trial at all, what they should have done was had O.J. plead guilty and get a life sentence. Absolutely. And I believe that's what the offer was in the deal we talked about a moment ago that uh, O.J. nixed was a life in prison sentence, correct? Correct. But, again, I, you know, they could have, they could have convinced him to take the, take the plea and said, look, right. dude, you've got their – DNA in your vehicle, their DNA in the foyer of your house, Nicole's DNA on your socks, found in your bedroom, your hairs on Ron Goldman's clothing, uh, their DNA on two gloves found in two separate places that are, they were like heiress, they were an expensive glove that you get them at Bloomingdale's. Not Walmart, <laughs> you know. Right. By no means were these gloves. It's the ever. volume of evidence. It they should have never taken it trial. They should have convinced OJ. If you don't take a plea, you could end up going to death row at St. Quentin. And believe me, you will not be the special person there. Absolutely, I think Kardashian at one point was actually trying to be the voice of reason. Didn't he kind of almost beg O.J. to take the deal? But, again, it wasn't about, you know, it wasn't about justice for them. It was about cheap politics and publicity to put their names on the map and get no right. right. Now, I don't want to. I don't want to throw Rob under the bus here. I think Rob Kardashian was actually, you know, towards at least 
in the process of the trial, I think he came to the conclusion and started, you know, whether he was ethical from the jump is kind of, you know, up to question. But Rob Rob Kardashian, I believe he was. Rob Kardashian is the exception. I think personally that Rob Kardashian probably, once he learned about the evidence, I think that he wished he was not an attorney because if he had not been an attorney, he could have testified to any statements Simpson made to him. Attorney, he could not do that, whether he represented him or not. Okay. Um, So, you know, I do think, I, I do, looking at his face, when the verdict was announced, I do think that he was torn, uh, that this was not the result he wanted. He didn't want O.J. to go to death row, but he also, I don't think, wanted him acquitted for the brutal murders of two innocent people. Absolutely not, and I think you're right when you called him the exception in this case. But let's talk about the jurors here. Uh, You know, a lot of it has been made. You know, there was a lot of dismissals in this jury pool. There was a lot of dismissals even, I believe, after the trial started, and they had to go to alternates. And that's something that, you know, I've never seen. I don't know if there's any precedent for that, but it seems like an unprecedented amount of movement in that juror pool. Is that correct? Right. Yeah, they had chosen, uh, because of the length of time the trial was expected to last, they mm-hmm. chose more than generally what they do in any criminal or civil trial. If you require 12 jurors for a verdict, you pick 14 to 16. Mm-hmm. And then once all the evidence is presented and the closing arguments are made and the instructions are read, the judge will put numbers on a piece of paper and put them in a hat or, you know, some random method, and they'll pick random numbers and they'll say, thank you, juror number one, you are dismissed. You know, juror number two, you're dismissed, and then they have the 12 jurors. In OJ's case, they had to pick a lot, I'm not sure what the number is, I don't recall the exact number, but it was probably in the 20s or 30s. Mm-hmm. So that with the length of this trial and anything that happens, people get sick, people have issues with child care or jobs or things that go on in their lives that they have to get back to. Um, they pick mm-hmm. enough people so that any dismissals would still leave them with 12 jurors. They got down to the final extra pool, didn't they? The final drawer in the extra pool by the time it was all said and done? You know, like I said, I don't remember the exact numbers, and I don't remember. Uh, I do remember that, um, that the only thing I really remember is that the uh, final makeup of the jury was 10 women and two men. Which and I feel really sorry for right? Well, I think that they they were confident confident because of the evidence that they had, 
and the sheer mm-hmm. volume of it. But I think once they started reading the juror questionnaires, some of that confidence started to fade, not only because of the location, but because of some of the things in the juror questionnaire. A lot right. of those they jurors were not job. bothered. Right. A lot of those jurors were not bothered by domestic violence. It wasn't a big deal to them. Right. Um, right. A and lot of them had had problems with police. Uh-huh. Uh so, um, but like I was about to say, I feel, I feel bad for those two men if they went into that room to deliberate and they both thought O.J. was guilty because they were against ten right. women. <laughs> they well, didn't stand a chance. And, you know, they kind of, and you assume that they were taking dramatic privileges with it, but they kind of went in in the people versus O.J. into the jurors' deliberations and, you know, like I said, they were probably taking a lot of dramatic freedom with that. But uh, with that being said, I remember one person saying that they thought they were guilty, and automatically it was racism was brought up. Oh, you must be racist and things right. like that. So Correct. I'm not Correct. sure that was discussed in the in the deliberations just for some fact being of what was presented in front of them. And – Let's get into the extra allegations that were made by the defense because let's be honest, the defense was just throwing allegations left and right. I mean, they were trying right. to bomb chills that were trying to get this. Honestly, I believe that Cochran was trying to get it thrown out before it even went to a decision. And I could be wrong. I don't even know if that was an option. But, I mean, Cochran was trying his damnedest. I think that probably prior to the start of the trial – I know that they filed a motion to suppress a lot of or all of the evidence seized at Rockingham because mm-hmm. of the warrantless Um, I don't recall whether there was a motion to dismiss or not. Um, and, you know, the one of the allegations that they made was uh, against Dennis Fung, and contamination of evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, the, the planting of the glove and the uh, racism of Mark Furman was another allegation. They made allegations about Nicole using drugs. They made allegations about Colombian hit squads coming to Los Angeles and killing Nicole and Ron to collect a drug debt from Faye Resnick, who was off in rehab. Right. And frankly, quite a few things that just never made any sense. That's one of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Why would they kill Nicole and Ron when the drug debt is owed by Faye Resnick and she's in rehab? There's no logic to it. And, and it's an of example Fern- of the. Mm-hmm. I, I was just going to say it's an example of throwing things against the wall to see what sticks. The spaghetti defense. Very true, and in this case, the spaghetti defense worked out, unfortunately. But mm-hmm. you spoke of Furman, and we're finally going to get to this moment where I can say this. I mean, you are probably going to disagree on this, but mm-hmm. I believe that Furman 
is the biggest miscalculation, not only in this trial, but probably in the history of the judicial system as far as murder trials go. There is no way, knowing what we know now, that Mark Furman should have been in that witness box, correct or incorrect? Well, this um, there's a lot of backstory. First of all, Mark Furman's history with LAPD was pretty impeccable. Uh, he mm-hmm. is my age or slightly older, so at the time of the murder, he would have been right around 30, 31, 32. Right. Uh, he had been a Marine, impeccable record in the Marines. Uh, again, he had been a patrol officer, had a, an impeccable record in LAPD. Um, I think he harbored some, not necessarily racist views because of the way he was brought up or anything like that, but I think he developed some kind of racist beliefs based on what he saw day in and day out while working on patrol, while working in narcotics, while working in homicide. Mm -hmm. And, you know, any positive associations he had with Latinos or African Americans or even Asian communities, kind of got wiped out mm-hmm. once he became a police officer. Um, I also think that that whole tape that was brought in mm-hmm. was an example of him exaggerating and trying to impress the writer who was a screenwriter and I believe was working on a project that she was going to try to develop for a TV show or movie and Mm -hmm. that Mark Furman wanted to impress her. And I would be willing to bet that racist cop was the angle she was going for. And so Mark Furman gave her what she wanted. So you think that Furman, you think that that was taken completely out of context? Exactly. Correct. Um, One thing, though, I I think Mark Furman, when he didn't tell anything, you know, he didn't tell the prosecution. The prosecution had no reason to believe that this was lurking in his background. Again, Mm -hmm. because he had an impeccable record. And I don't don't think he had any history with internal affairs for excessive force or anything of of that nature. I'm not sure according to – I'm not sure how much this was creative liberties or anything, but according to People versus OJ, though, Darden did go to Marsha many times and say, this guy's a little funky. He rubs me the wrong way. Well, that is is not necessarily that – I don't think that Darden thought Furman was a racist. Furman, if you've ever read his books or seen his interviews, He is one of those very intelligent people who Mm -hmm. wants everyone in the room to know that he's smarter than they are. Okay. I don't think he realizes he's – I don't – yeah, I don't think he realizes he's doing it, but he does it. And I recognize it because I do it too. 
if I think I'm right, I can be very insufferable. Right, right. As we all say in that time. And I can I rub people the wrong way all the time. Um, so mm-hmm. I think that's his personality and uh he's kinda well, kinda not a big personality. He's kinda low key boring maybe. I don't know if that's the right word. Mm-hmm. Or flat. And I think that was what Darden was reacting to. It was either a sense of arrogance or smugness and or just a flat personality. Right, right. But, well, um, so, was- again, you know, Mark, and I don't think Mark Furman realizes, for a very, very smart man, which he is, mm-hmm. when F. Lee Bailey started asking him about the N-word, mm-hmm. Mark Furman should have known that F. Lee Bailey knew what the answer to that question should be. And Mark Furman's the right. one who, for whatever reason, made the choice not to give the truthful answer. Right. And I think probably more than anything, I think he was embarrassed that this was coming back to bite him on the ass. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, rightfully he should have been, so to speak, uh, embarrassed the way he acted. But, you know, like I said, the really sad thing is for a very smart man, had he answered it truthfully and said, yes, I, I did about 15 years ago, I was talking to this writer. She was trying to come up with a screenplay for a racist cop movie. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I was trying to impress her, so I played the part of the racist cop. And we made Kate. Right. If he had said all mm-hmm. that, it probably wouldn't have gone over as well with the jury, better with the jury, but it sure as hell would have been better than playing those tapes to the jury. Because if he mm-hmm. said all that, the jury would have never heard the tapes. And Absolutely. Then, and then it it basically destroyed everything he had said and the work he had done. On the case. Well, yeah, because, I, did. I mean. So, yeah, very smart man, but he did a really stupid thing. Right, right. Not only, I mean, was Furman a miscalculation as far as the uh, uh, prosecution goes, a lot of bad, you know, a lot of bad timing or a lot of bad things went their way as far as things being suppressed, especially, you know, the previous history of abuse. Right. Correct. Um, The most states in and federal system, you're limited on what you can present in a criminal trial as far as a defendant's bad act. Um, And, again, I think some of this was as an example of Judge Ito 
of being afraid to go too far. So he really severely limited what could be presented. Um, I think that they had testimony and evidence that pretty much proved that throughout the course of the relationship with O.J., O.J. was verbally abusive, mentally abusive, and physically abusive. But they were limited to just one or two instances that were several years before the murders. And you couldn't talk about the stalking. You couldn't talk about the harassment, Correct. the domestic abuse, the violence. You, and you couldn't I, talk about Nicole even predicting her own death at one point. Correct. Correct. She had. Uh, she spoke to a woman at a battered women's shelter, and she said, you know, I bet my husband's going to kill me, and he's going to get away with it. And that woman was not able to testify um, the stalking and harassment I don't think they got to play the 911 call from October of 93 which was eight months before the murders when OJ right. went to Nicole's house to confront her sit down a door and entered her house and screamed and hollered like a maniac mm-hmm. throwing accus- accusations at her and yelling at the top of his voice. And she was afraid at that time that he was about to beat the shit out of her. Right. So, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, no, the jury didn't get to hear that because they might convict him for that rather than for the murder. Now, thing that you didn't mention in our uh, outline here that uh, I wanted to ask you about, why wasn't the uh, Bronco chase played for the jurors? What was the precedent on that? Why wasn't that allowed in evidence? I don't know. The only thing that I can think of is that while most prosecutors are very good at arguing that flight is an indicator of a guilty conscience. Uh, the defense team was able to get that attempt at flight suppressed because of all the excuses. You know, the mask was for him to go to Disney World or Disneyland. And he didn't know how that gun got in the car. He had no idea it was there. It wasn't his. And he never had $5,000 or $10,000 or whatever the amount was, that's, you know, the media made that up. And so, you know, it's a state of mind thing. Generally, that is, if you flee after you're charged with murder, generally that is used as, a, as consciousness of guilt. But it can generally only be used if you take the stand and testify and offer right. explanations. Which OJ did or, you know, say, I've always wanted to face these charges. And then you can show the Bronco chase and the attempt to flee to Mexico. So it may mm-hmm. also have been that he he didn't testify. Absolutely. And they didn't Absolutely. open the door by by having other witnesses repeat self-serving statements made by OJ. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the motive here. Uh, what was the official, you know, prosecution talking about the motive on this? What was the official motive that was well, presented by the pro- prosecution? The crux of it was just the control and the abuse 
and stalking of Nicole. Nicole had the audacity to leave OJ, to want a divorce. And then after an attempt at reconciliation, to say, no, I don't want to have anything more to do with you, to not speak to him at the recital, to exclude him from the dinner with the family. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that, as I said a little earlier, Nicole was never a person to OJ. Nobody else is ever a person to OJ. We are mm-hmm. things and other and possessions. And when you're his possession, you can do whatever you want. Just like you said with the car. It's my car. I paid for it. I can do what I want. If I want to destroy it, I can destroy it. It's my house. It's my TV. If I want to destroy it, I can destroy it. And that's exactly how he was with Nicole. If I want to destroy her, I can destroy her. Right, right. So let's get into the verdict now. Obviously, you know, it was a quick verdict. You know, nobody expected this jury to return a verdict so quickly. I believe actually Marsha had planned on going on vacation, as did Shapira. I believe he was headed for Hawaii by the time that – they asked that the jury had made a decision. Let's talk about the deliberations in the jury. What do you think it was like? I don't believe that we have any account. What do you think it was like in that room for this jury? Especially, you know, you well, mentioned those things could have been the dissenting they, opinions. Basically, as I understand it from interviews with three of the jurors, um, they were pretty much not going to convict him, no matter what they saw, no matter what they heard. So basically, the 12 jurors went back to the deliberation room, and um, they ordered lunch, and they had lunch, and then announced that they had a verdict. And that's kind of an insult, considering the length of time that it took to try that case. That shows they did not spend they did not spend a minute or ten minutes talking about anything. They just ordered mm-hmm. the last free lunch on Los Angeles County and were done with it. Right. And I think it was because he was a celebrity. Right. And I, I, I think again. in in some ways it was payback for Rodney King and and what they perceived as, you know, the injustices of the system against black men. But again, O.J. Simpson Mm -hmm. is not the poster child for that because O.J. Simpson has not lived in the black community. He still doesn't live in the black community. He spends his time on golf courses with a bunch of white men. He dates white women. He marries white women. He ain't a brother anymore. And he doesn't want to be unless it suits him. Right, right. And see, that's one of the things I wanted to address. There's been a lot of accusations, especially, and I want to know, you know, creative freedom. 
especially you know especially what they showed on the people versus OJ post verdict you know one of the final jurors was walking out of the out of the courtroom that day and he kind of threw up the black power sign at OJ is that something that really happened uh, not that I know of um no I like I said I not that I know of I've never read or heard anything like that, I think that was purely dramatic effect. What we call poetic license. Right, right. And another so, thing um, that I wanted was that there has apparently been jurors that came out and said, oh, yeah, it was definitely a retribution for the uh, for the Rodney King uh, situation. Right. Uh, heard those interviews? No, I haven't, but I I have heard about things like that being said by other other jurors and other commentators, and that is one of the most tragic parts of this case. Uh, O.J. Simpson, people of California versus O.J. Simpson, should not have been about teaching LAPD a lesson, punishing LAPD. Retribution for Rodney King. It should have been about the murders of Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman and putting the person who committed those murders in prison, whether for life or on death row. And that is one of the one of the one of the saddest parts and one of the things that makes me believe that Judge Ito was to a degree afraid of the defense was that he allowed part of Johnny Cochran's uh, closing to be about Mm -hmm. sending a message to LAPD and sending a message to white America we're going to stop abusing black men in our justice system. Right, right. He, he. I mean, that should have been. I mean, he should have been sanctioned for even trying to make it because that case is not about that. And a criminal charge against one person is not an opportunity to send a message to a police department or send a message to a district attorney's office or a mayor's office or any other arm of government. The the jurors forgot that there were two people murdered in this case. And they did not deserve that by any stretch of the imagination. Absolutely not. I mean, it's completely asinine, in my opinion, to come back with that verdict. But we've got about three minutes left here, Lisa. Let's talk about the civil trial quickly and uh, what came of it. Obviously, mentioned earlier in talks that uh, OJ's obviously trying to avoid the judgment in this case and uh, trying to avoid having to pay the family of uh, uh, Ron Mm -hmm. Goldman. Let's go ahead and quickly go over the uh, civil trial. Well, a lot of the evidence, thankfully, that was omitted from the criminal trial was 
presented to the jury in the civil trial. Um, the history of abuse was full on presented. And uh, also, one of the other advantages in the civil trial, OJ could not plead the fifth. He had to testify. And he testified by deposition and he testified at the trial. And um, that did not go very well for him because that smarmy, arrogant, manipulative, uh, person that O.J. Simpson is came through and the jurors were not swayed or manipulated by him at all. So uh, right, they I'm did. Not... And I think the other the other advantage is the, the burden of proof in a civil trial is by preponderance of the evidence, which just means that one party's evidence weighs more in favor than the other parties. So it's, you know, 51-49 or 52-48 if you want to put it in percentages. Okay, okay. Well, obviously we know what happened in that trial. Obviously O.J. was uh, found responsible for the murder. I believe it was just Ron Goldman, correct? Because it was just the Goldman family that was in there? Well, no, there was a verdict for the Browns as well as for the Goldmans for the deaths of both Nicole and Ron. Um, The Browns have not been as, uh, I I don't know if they're, I I think for them just the verdict was enough. But for the Goldmans, not only did they want the verdict, but they want to make sure O.J. knows that every penny he earns is not going to be his, that it's going to go toward that judgment. And they're using that judgment to fund multiple uh, domestic violence charities and and, uh, endeavors to help women who are victims or men who are victims of domestic abuse and violence. Absolutely, and that's something that, you know, should be done here moving forward. But, uh, Lisa, we're getting into overtime here. We're going to go ahead and kind of wrap this thing up. Lisa, what's your uh, final thoughts here as we wrap up O.J. Simpson? Well, you know, as I said uh, when we spoke with Linda Ives, he may not see justice in this world, But when he passes from this world into the next, he will see justice then. And that's that's all we can hope for. Um, It was a horrible loss for Nicole's family, for her son and her daughter, who were eight and six when she was killed, or nine and six when she was killed. Uh, One of the most tragic things is that he killed their mother while they were upstairs in the in the condo asleep. And police had right. to get the children out of the house without letting them see what had happened to their mother on that front walkway. Um, and that's what makes him a little bit more than just a narcissist that makes him pretty evil. Absolutely. He, so, you know, he talks about it. 
love for his kids, but obviously, you know, through that, you can tell, you know, OJ cares about one person and one person only. Yeah. They're props. (laughs) That's it. They're, They're props to make him look good in public. Because what he is most concerned about is how the public perceives him. And that's a very common trait among narcissists like Damian Eccles, O.J. Simpson, Jody Arias, even Dahlia DiBolito. They want that public perception to be positive. And they don't care how much they have to lie, cheat, or steal in order to keep that perception positive. And that's just what he tried to do with the, with the confession. It's hypothetical, not real. So... Right, and I don't think we're ever going to have full closure on this. Obviously, you know, we pretty, I think 90% at least of Americans believe that OJ did it, but I don't believe we'll fully ever have closure. But Lisa, it was certainly fun talking with you about this here tonight on Clear and Convincing. Let's go ahead and talk about the schedule coming. Okay, I just want to make one one final word about Ron Goldman. Um, he was incredibly loved by his father, his mother, his sister. He has nieces and nephews, some that knew him, some that didn't, that love him just the same. And, um, you know, we're all lucky that there are people like that in the world who try to do the right thing no matter what the outcome or consequences might be. So he deserves the last word, most definitely. And so now we're ready to talk about the schedule. You there? Yes, ma'am. I sure you am. Cry- Michael, you got you crying? No, I almost did no, because ma'am. Ron, Ron, Ron Goldman of all the victims that I've ever read about, he breaks my heart. He really does. So next week we're going to be talking about Rodney Reed. Um. That is the case out of Texas that we covered on American Idiots, or maybe it was the Pulse. I'm not sure which. Um, I believe it was still American Idiots at that point. <laughs> yeah. So, um, anyway, well, thank you, everyone, for listening to Clear and Convincing tonight with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Cornahan. If you like our show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress. Dot com. You can follow me on Twitter at O'Brien LN. Join us next week. We're going to be discussing uh, State of Texas versus Rodney Reed. That'll be episode four. For 22 years, Rodney Reed has claimed that he had a secret relationship with his victim in an attempt to explain away the DNA evidence that ties him to a brutal rape and murder in Bastrop, Texas. Michael and I are going to be discussing the evidence against Reed his multiple post-conviction claims, and his recent writ application to the United States Supreme Court asking that the justices in Washington review Texas's post-conviction DNA testing statute. I hope you'll join us, and I look forward to talking to you next week, Michael. Absolutely. I'm going to be here, as I am every week, with bells on, and I can't wait to talk to you next week, Lisa. All right. Thank you, Michael. Good night.
Good night. Well, ladies and gentlemen, for Lisa O'Brien, I'm Michael Carnahan. You've been listening to the Clear and Convincing Podcast here on Talk Radio 49. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We will be back next week with another great episode of Clear and Convincing. We'll see you next week, everybody. Turn out the lights. The party's over. They say that all good things must end. Call it a night The party's over